I'll just ask you a little trivia question. <clears throat> it's only found one time in the Bible. Anybody know what book in the Bible Beulah's found? I was in Beulah land. Anybody know? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> anybody know what Beulah means? All righty. Oh, you, you, huh? I'm sorry, what? No. No. I mean, Beulah land, when we talk about it as the song, to us, yeah, we equate that with heaven. I'm talking about what the word Beulah means. Anybody know? doesn't mean heaven. Okay, well, let's give you a little something to work on this week <coughs> after you get all get saved and uh, get into the Bible. <coughs> <coughs> now, today, <coughs> we're going to start 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, <coughs> no, that's not where it's found. Uh, <coughs> we're coming through 2 Corinthians. We've finished chapter 5 last week. In fact, we've, I was looking this week. We're almost halfway through uh, this book. And uh, we've learned a lot, but yet there's still a lot more we're going to have to get down. And uh, we do know uh, that, uh, and I hope you're putting it in your Bible this way, and categorizing it this way, we know that uh, the theme of this book is the aspect of ministry. And we know that each chapter uh, has a different theme or deals with a different theme that we find in dealing with people in ministry. We saw in chapter 1 where uh, we found the ministry defined as uh, that uh, we are to go through the suffering with the people we minister with. That means you go through their struggles with them. And we talked about that last week, you know, and been talking about it off and on. But that's chapter one. We, we, we bond with people through their suffering to help them through the Word of God you know, after God has helped us through our sufferings in life. Chapter two we talked about how it represents the forgiving spirit of the minister and how that uh, the bottom line of the church and ministry is reconciliation in people's lives. Chapter 3, we talked about our credibility. as And uh, really, in that chapter, we saw that the real proof of our salvation is, is our ministry, yeah, basically because that's what God saved you for. Chapter 4, we saw the definition of our ministry as far as our personal uh, aspect. We talked about that. There was two things there. And then in chapter 5, which we finished up last week, <coughs> we talked about our perspective uh, of your ministry. And there was three things there. And today in chapter 6, we're going to move right on into this. And uh, there's a lot in this chapter. And uh, we're going to talk about, and the theme of this one is the fellowship of the minister the things that we as God's people should be in fellowship with. Now, I know that when you type the word fellowship, and we use that word a lot, uh, there's many, many different aspects to it. I want to really focus on uh, the fundamental bottom line that Paul's trying to get across to these people today uh, as he begins to lay out this chapter. I think it's very vital for you. This is a great chapter, and I think it will provide you uh, who want to minister for God with a lot of answers to questions that you have about why things go the way they do. You know, I know that when I was a young guy in the ministry and just getting into it, I, 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 that was one of the questions I, I really asked more than anything else. I've always been someone who observes things. My father and the Lord taught me to never take anything for granted, that you always look at everything and, and ask why and try to figure out why. 
Uh, I never forgot that. I think that that's probably one of the uh, things that has helped me more in life and, and probably anything other single thing is, is always looking at things and asking why that is. I was never satisfied with just what somebody necessarily told me, not that I didn't think they were telling me the truth, but I wanted to find out for myself why things are the way they are. And many times in ministry as I was growing up, I would see circumstances, I would see people, <clears throat> I would see pastors, uh, I would see people who were spiritual, supposed to be spiritual leaders, uh, and, I, and I would always ask myself, why is that the way it is? Why does it always seem to go that way? One of the things the Bible does, for me anyhow, I can't say what it does for you, the Bible always provides simple answers to hard questions in dealing with any circumstance in life, certainly dealing with people. Uh, that's what the Rye Bible really does. That's why I try to encourage you to, to read the Bible, try to encourage you to uh, get the principles of the Bible, because the Bible will take any complex situation that you find, no matter how complex it is. And if you use the principles, it'll always break it down in its most simplistic form. I, I call it the lowest common denominator. You know, if you've been in school, uh, you know, when you divide something down, you take it down to the lowest common denominator, that means it can't be divided anymore. And when you deal with problems and people and circumstances, or you just view circumstances in life, you're always better off to get to the lowest common denominator as quickly as you can. Uh, and as I said, there's a number of things I want to give you out of this chapter and uh, things that really have helped me in the ministry of understanding it. And we're going to go through those one at a time over the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, but uh, I, I think it'll really help you. I, I must tell you that I'm really excited from what I've seen. Thursday night, you know, we got the ladies' prayer groups all set up and ready to go. And we talked about the upcoming people ministry and we talked about partnering up with somebody and all of that. And I, I really, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I didn't really have an idea of um, who was going to do what because it's not something that I really uh, put an application out or put a sign-up sheet on because the requirements of this is going to be, you know, very extenuating. And so I just basically been throwing it out there, asking God to put it into people's hearts that really want to move into a ministry where they work with people. And I want to take those people and then equip them to that task and give them everything that they need. And, you know, so I really didn't know. I've been asking God for, praying for God for 30 people that you know, he would give me and put you in, you know, teams of two, 15 teams would be more than I could ever hope for. But I was so encouraged to see you uh, scurrying around trying to find you a partner. And I, my suggestion is that if you're going to do this, people are asking me, and I don't have the answer. You know, uh, is so-and-so going to do this? I'd like to pair up with her or him or whatever. And yet, at the same time, Missy brought this up Thursday night, and I, <clears throat> I forgot to uh, uh, say it Thursday night. Uh, many of you who are married, uh, you, you can team up with your husband if that's what you want to do. Uh, it doesn't. There's so many variations of how we're going to work this. And there's so many things that are going to come out of this. So you can pretty much, uh, but I'd make myself available. I'd tell people, hey, I'm going to do this. You know, if I'm looking for a, uh, somebody to work this with me, as long as you're comfortable that you're going to be able to pass the test. Uh, and uh, I would, you know, it's all going to work through the prayer group. So I would just start working through the prayer groups and find out, you know, who is and then, and then work it from there. But you're going to find there's a number of things that I want to talk to you about out of this chapter. Remember last week I gave you the, four, the principles that uh, were made up, the fourth section of principles? And I, I gave you this one. 
and I think it was the last one I gave you. Always see things, the situation as they really are, never as they appear or they're, as they're presented. I, I can't tell you how valuable that principle is, to always see the situation as they really are, never as they appear or many times as they're presented to you because that's going to be happening all the time. Now, this is what an operational principle, this is something that you'll use, not necessarily teach to somebody, but you'll use in your own life in, in, in putting the things out and, get, and working with people. You know, in dealing with people, you're gonna, you're gonna, uh, you'll face this all the time. Now, the first thing about this chapter I want you to understand, uh, I want to talk about a common problem that churches have. And uh, it's a problem that every church experiences. I've been in this business for a lot of years, and it's a, it is the single commonest thing that I know as a young person growing up in the ministry, I ask, why is this? Why does this happen? And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, and it doesn't matter uh, how good the church is. It doesn't matter how Bible-based the church is or how, Bible, how much it teaches the Bible, how ministry-orientated it is. It doesn't matter how, if it's a soul-winning church. It doesn't matter if it's a mission-minded church. Uh, I've seen this situation over and over again all of my life. And it's simply, why do people quit going and leave good churches? And that's something that you're going to experience, you're going to have to face, you're going to see if you get into ministry. You're going to start working with people, and you're going to pour your heart into them. You're going to pour everything you've got into them. You're going to teach them the right Bible teachings and the right Bible doctrine. And someplace along the line, they're just going to stand up and walk out and never look back. And I've watched that all my life. I've seen that all my life. And I, I've asked myself over the years. I remember, you know, the, I think the first five years I was in the ministry was one of the most eye-opening um, uh, things in my life. Because I, was, I had moved from Ohio to Missouri, and everything was different out here. I was in another environment, and I was in a big church, and I, I, I watched all these things. And I never really, really said much, but I sure thought a lot, and I sure asked myself the questions. And I was on the phone with Mel uh, many times, burning the lines up, asking him, why is this? Why is the way this is? And after a while, when I started to figure out the Bible for myself and really get a handle on it, you know, I began to see and understand. It's something that in dealing with people kind of comes with the territory. Uh, every church faces it. Most just never understand it. And I want you to understand every aspect of the ministry. And uh, I'm preaching to all of you this morning, but I'm, I'm telling you, if you're going to get into the ministry with people, <clears throat> you need to understand why certain things take place. Because you're going to be involved in it. It's going to unfold in your life. It's going to happen all around you. And I understand why people leave bad churches. I mean, I do. Many times they're very politically orientated and uh, they're very much a, an organization is very political. Many times they're dead churches and they have nothing going for God. Many times they don't teach the Bible. Many times they teach bad doctrine or the heresy or they have the wrong Bible. And, uh, and let me tell you, I've been in this business a lot of years. There's some really bad churches out there. And I'm talking about Baptist churches. And I understand, you know, I understand full well what I'm talking about here that there's no such thing as a perfect church. You know, people jump from church to church to church trying to find some perfect church. I'm telling you, that's like trying to find a perfect husband or the perfect wife that just doesn't exist. 
so you don't look for a perfect one. You got to settle for just a real one. See, <laughs> one that's doing to the best of its ability what God uh, wants them to do. That's why I tell wives looking for uh, husbands or husbands looking for wives. You know, you don't ever marry the person. You marry the Christ in the person. Because you're never going to find somebody who's perfect. You find somebody that's real. That's what you do. And uh, I, I understand why people leave bad churches. I really do. You know, uh, as I told you, one of the things that my father and the Lord Mel Sabaka taught me, and I'm very grateful for, was to always pay attention, to see everything as it, try to see it as it is, not as it appears, and never take anything for granted. And uh, I found over the years that, that, that and this has helped me, Five basic reasons why people uh, quit going to church. Five basic reasons. And these reasons are absolutely incredibly important, uh, and yet there's one answer for all five of these. There's just one answer. And the answer is in the chapter we're going to look at today. Now, over the years, I have paid attention, and I I catalog everything. I, I probably have 150 notebooks, I don't even know what's in them all anymore. They're so old. But I have cataloged everything. When I would see a pattern of something, I'd run a, you know, in the Navy, they, they can listen on a, on a sonar, uh, that underwater sounding thing. They can listen in that, and they can hear the screws of a submarine, and they can tell you if it's a Russian submarine or whatever submarine it is. You know why? Because on their computers, they have, they have cataloged all the noises that the different engines make, uh, and they all sound, maybe they don't sound any different to you and me, but to a computer, they sound different. And they can, a guy on a sonar, he can listen to that, and he can say a Russian submarine just went by, or, a, or you know, a, a, a Finnish freighter went someplace, or a Chinese junk went someplace. You know, he can tell by listening to the sound of the screws uh, what they, and what they did, or somebody did, I don't even know who did it, they, they took all of those sounds, they cataloged over the years all those sounds, and then they put them into a computer, and the computer listens to it, identifies it, it's like fingerprints, and tells you what it is. Well, I, I did that with things in the Bible and, and things I saw. I, I think I wanted to learn the ministry so bad and, and so desperately that I just went, went overboard with it, and I just cataloged everything that I saw. And, you know, if, if someday when I'm dead and gone, if somebody ever gets their hands on that, if you can ever figure out my ciphering, you're, I mean, you'll have a vast knowledge of material. I, if I was you, I'd just get it this morning, because you'll never figure out my handwriting, first of all. <laughs> but over the years, I've cataloged these five scenarios. Uh, that you find, and, and there are scenarios that, uh, in these scenarios lies the answer and its connection to the chapter we're going to start today. Now, scenario number one, I got to tell you, if you would ever find these in my Bible and they're in my Bible, I have people's names listed with them. Uh, use, no, no, no. It, usually, that's how I remember things. I mean, I do. I have a tough time with names. It's not because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just dense that way. I always have to associate people's names with certain things. Somebody will say, well, somebody will say, well, his name is Richard. And I will remember that just by Richard. So I look at the person, what do I do? I think of Richard the Lionhearted, see? Okay, it didn't mean anything to you, but it means something to me. You don't even know who Richard the Lionhearted is. He was a great king of England here during the Crusades. So I associate with that. 
When somebody says, you know, this is a person, I'll either think of something or I'll put, and that's how I remember it, you see. So these scenarios are no different. These go back many, many years. And I, you know, if I would give you these names, you wouldn't know who they were. But, you know, like on, you know, like on uh, Dragnet, we'll, we'll change the names to protect the innocent here, or the guilty in this case, I guess. But anyway, but I have names for all of these in my Bible for the people that were the first ones that I, I, I programmed. Otherwise, I wouldn't remember them. So, but I'm not going to do the name, so we'll just do it this way. Scenario number one. We'll take the name out, and scenario number one is, I need to get married right now scenario. <laughs> now, you can put in your own name there if you want. I mean, it doesn't matter, male or female. And uh, this kind of person that I'm thinking of was a great gal, and she, years ago, and, you know, she came in, and, and you know, she, she had some baggage, and she worked through that, and she began to, uh, God began to do some tremendous things in her life, and she, uh, she was already saved, and she began to get involved and do this and do that and, and disciple people, and she was, a, she was, she really come along pretty well. And then the, 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 the principle, the principle happened. Remember the principle I gave you? You can't, uh, you can't build two intimate relationships at the same time. Remember I gave you that last week? Well, what happened? I don't remember the exact details, but Mr. Wonderful came into her life. And when Mr. Wonderful comes into your life, when you really try to build a relationship with God, let me tell you something. It's probably not Mr. Wonderful. And what happened was she tried to do everything that she you know, that uh, uh, was trying to do, and this guy uh, didn't really like coming to church, and, and, you know, and the reason why you can't build two intimate relationships at the same time is because one relationship is physical, warm, sitting next to you, touching you, holding your hand, looking into your eyes, paying for your dinner, uh, telling you how beautiful you are. The other one is just in a book. And if you don't get grounded in this one first, this one over here, Mr. Johnny Blue Eyes, why, it's over with, man. It's over with. And, and that's what happened. That's what happened. I mean, uh, uh, she didn't even look back at all the things that God had done for her. She didn't, she forsook every biblical process and principle when I have talked about prove all things. She threw everything away and she basically wound up losing everything she had with God. She married a guy who was an absolute zero who was an absolute, and the partner, her partner, didn't like coming to church. He didn't like God, didn't like me. I don't know how he could not like me. (laughs) And because of the fact that she got her emotions involved with it, well, you know the end of the story. She's gone. She's gone. And, And I've said it many, many times. You can't build two intimate relationships at the same time. God will take the cheap shot every time. It'll happen. It just will. And she wound up taking everything that God had given her and threw it under her way and made a terrible deal and, and probably lost everything that God had for her. And today, going to church nowhere. He going to church nowhere. He pulled her away and took from her everything that God had. That's scenario one. Scenario number two, I call this one a brawling woman in a white house. It's based on Proverbs 21.9, which says, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. Now, that's a great principle. They may not understand that principle. It's really a tribulation principle, but it's true. And, you know, in marriage relationships, there's a role. There's a role of the man, and there's a role of the woman. And sometimes, sometimes uh, those roles get reversed. 
And sometimes the woman takes the role of the man. The man doesn't do the role that he's supposed to do. And she dominates and she <coughs> takes over and it never works. It's a mess. Now, you all got cars. Let me prove my point. You all got cars. The thing that starts your car is called a battery. And that battery has a negative and a positive side. And when you battery goes dead, and I've done this by experience. I, I, when it, yeah, you know where I'm going. When the battery goes dead and you're going to charge somebody else's, take somebody else's car and charge your battery, <coughs> you got to get those batteries, you got to line the positives up and the negatives up. You get the positive on the negative and the negative on the positive, you're going to blow something. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And that's what happens when the rule reversals in a marriage get the wrong way. You're going to blow something. You're going to blow something. It's just something's going to go. It just is. I mean, I did it on my car one time. I almost blew my fenders off. I mean, it, it, it sparked and went everywhere, you know, went everywhere. So you can see how when you go to a church where the Bible teaches and there's strong male leadership and the Bible teaches the role of the man versus the role of the woman, and puts it in a biblical context when you got a woman who wants to run the place, run everything, and they always do the same thing. They always marry wimpy guys who they can control. And that's why they never work in a church where it's a strong church with male leadership. It never does. I got a neighbor lady across the street, and uh, it's the funniest thing in the world. I love this thing. And she's, she is a very dominating woman. And she's got a little bitty husband. And they got a dog. No, I love dogs. I have two dogs. And she's got one. It's a little chihuahua. And it's one of those little yappy, big-eyed, Taco Bell-looking dogs that, that and, I, and I, I die laughing. I, you know, I, I love taking my dogs out to the bathroom at the last time about between 10 and 10, 15. Because she's always got her dog out there. And it's my, my street's pretty dark. We don't have a street light right in front of our house, so it's pretty dark. And I can't always see her, but I can hear her. And she's, she's a real rough gal. She is. She's a, I mean, I mean, she, I mean, she could hunt bears with probably a stick if she wanted to. <laughs> and her husband's just a little bitty guy, you know. And I walk him, watch him get out of the car and walk in. I think to myself, man, he better not give her any lips. She'll break him over there. You know, I mean, and, and, and she is. She's very dominating. And I hear her out there with the dog. A little chihuahua. And, he, and my dog, you know, Buddy or Daisy, I take them out one at a time. And they, they're out there, you know, and they're sniffing around. And I hear her. I can't see her, but I hear her. I hear her going, go potty. Go potty. Go potty. <laughs> this little dog is just dancing around, you know, with her little eyes out. Go and potty. Go potty. Go potty. I mean, it's echoing down the street. <laughs> She's so dominant that my dog goes potty. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of times... <laughs> I wanted to go potty. <laughs> I mean, I mean she got it, man. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think of myself, you know, every time I hear her, I think of her and her husband. She probably goes in the house and says, go potty, go potty. He says, I don't have to go. I don't care. Go potty. And you can see how a person like that or a situation like that, it ain't going to work. It ain't gonna work. I had a, years ago. I had a little guy who uh, one time he, he was he had he's married to this wife and she was something else, and she's always telling him what to do, trying to tell everybody to do. And, and she didn't like me. Most women like that don't like me because they meet somebody they can't tell what to do. See, 
And their whole world is built around finding men they can beat up and, and tell them what they want to do. So we don't get along very well. And one time he called me on the phone and he says, this has been years ago. He says, uh, Bob, I, I want you to know, I, I think we're leaving your Sunday school class. And I was joking, you know, because at the time, cause I, I knew they were going to leave anyhow, so I didn't care. And I said to him, I said, okay, I said, but you, did you ask your wife first? <laughs> I was kidding. He says, no, uh, she's the one that told me to call you. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> we'll move on with that. Then you got scenario number three. And scenario number three is the giant, spiritual giant scenario. And uh, the bottom line here is pride and self-righteousness. You know, they don't get the recognition that they think they should get. They're always taking credit for everything that God does. You know, they're always projecting themselves as great spiritual people. But in truth, they're very weak. They're very critical of everything. They're very self-righteous and they're very carnal. And in reality, they never really do anything for God. Well, I mean, come on, gee whiz. I mean, you can see how if there is a church where you earn your way and you pay your dues, how that that uh, would be an issue. And and it always is. It always is. And uh, there's no politics to play through. You know, connected with this is always gossip and slander, and they're always talking about people behind their back, and yet they always project themselves as something that's great and spiritual. And you can see how if you're into a church that really deals with it, and, uh, and, and people have to earn their way through the Bible, and, uh, well, you can see. I mean, you can see where it goes. Scenario number four, I call, you know, I always teach people a nice little thing, you know, God first, others second, and you last. This scenario is me first, me second, and me last. Sometimes I call this the, uh, this, this scenario is simply a my will over God's will. Sometimes I call this the Frank Sinatra scenario. Frank Sinatra sang a great song. It's one of my favorites. I'll do it my way. You ever hear it? And, uh, you know, I'm going to do it my way. I don't like being told otherwise. Oh, I'll come to church, but I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to go to grow. I'll grow. I'm not going to, to minister. I'm going, I am who I am. I am who I am. You know, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. You know, you know, it's a thing where you, you're not going to change. Well, in a church that is based on ministry and keeping people accountable to the task that God saved us for, well, you can see how that's going to not work for somebody. So, I mean, that's just the way it goes. The fifth and final scenario, I call this the double life scenario. And uh, that's somebody that simply won't give up the world. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 4, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? You can't have one foot in the world, and we think, I've heard people say, you know, he's got one foot in the world, one foot in church. That's impossible. The word enmity is where we get our word enemy. And the Bible says, know ye not that the friendship of this world is enmity with God? You can't have the best of both worlds. You can't go to church and have beer in your refrigerator, marijuana in your glove box, you know, cigarettes in your secret stash, mouthwash and chewing gum, the mask at all, you know. You just can't do that. It's a thing where you're either in or you're out. You can't have one foot in or one foot out. And they make the impossible uh, mistake uh, of, of trying to be a worldly Christian. And that just can't be. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no man can serve two masters. You're going to take one or the other. And the master of the world will always claim their loyalty first. It's just, it's just, too, it's just too hard. I've said it before. 
when a man or a woman is out of fellowship with God and they go to church, no matter what you preach on, no matter what you say, they always get, they always hear what their sin is. And that's why they get so irritable with churches, irritable with preaching. You can get up and just say the 23rd Psalm. Somebody go out the door and say, well, who does they think he is? You Because know, all they hear is what the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you on. Now, you guys, honestly, in most churches, they give the preacher too much credit. They really do. They give too, the preacher too much credit for, for the things that he says getting to them. Because it isn't the preacher that says it that gets to you. It's the preacher that says it, but if you ain't figured out yet, hello, it's the Holy Spirit of God who takes it into your heart. I can't get into your heart. I never read people's hearts. I have people all the time saying, well, she's this and he's that and they're this and this and that. I never go there. I don't read people's hearts because I can't see people's hearts. And when I'm preaching, I'm certainly not trying to read anybody's heart. That's not my job. My job is just to preach the truth and the truth through the Holy Spirit of God will penetrate your heart. And so when you get into a scenario that you're out of fellowship with God, no matter who you are, it doesn't matter whatever the man says. He can get up and he can say, you know what? The sky is blue today and the sun's out and it's a great day. This is the day the Lord hath made. Who shall be glad and rejoice? You'll say, not me, brother. That's where you're at. That's where you're at. It's just hard to hear it week after. Hey, I understand. I knew how I was when I didn't want to go to church before I got saved, even for a while after I got saved. I didn't want to go. When I did go because my mom made me go, I sat in the back. I didn't want those crazy Baptists getting their hands on me. I didn't want that wild man up there who later on became the Apostle Paul in my life and did everything for me that a man could do in the Word of God. But at that point, I didn't want to hear that. You see, I wanted to do it my way. I had, I had my world, my foot was in the world. And I didn't want to go. I went because my mom said I needed to go. I went because my dad was in the hospital getting ready to die of cancer. I went because that was the thing I was supposed to do. But I didn't want to. I hated it. Because everything he said, everything he said, I took personal. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God was making it personal. I told you how I really got my life turned around. I was in there, I, had, I came home, my father was in a hospital, and he was, had about probably four or five months to live, and I got home from, on leave that day, on emergency leave, and my mom wanted to go to church that morning, and, and I, I really didn't want to go, but I went, and she went into the main service, and I don't know why I didn't go in the main service with her, but I just, and I, can't, I can't tell you to this day why I went to that college and career class that Mel Sabaka was 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 in charge of. And I sat in the back. And I sat back there and I, I remembered saying to myself, well, gee, I, 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 don't, I don't have to, I just don't really want to be here. But my mom, and I don't know why I just didn't go with her. But the, Mel got up and he said, well, you know what? I'm not going to preach to you today. We're going to have a guest speaker. And I, my, I felt a great pause of relief. That's how stupid I was back then. He says, uh, we got a guy going to preach today named Tommy Thomas. And I said, oh, great. You know what? I saw him, some old guy about 70 years old up there. I thought, this guy probably got no teeth. He's probably going to gum us to death. I can handle this. <laughs> well, little did I know that old Tommy Thomas was the guy that taught Sabaka how to preach, along with Phil Ward and a couple other guys. Tommy Thomas was the superintendent of Brown Street Mission. He could preach the paint off the walls. But I wasn't going to hear the, preach, the, the paint preached off the walls that morning. Because old Tommy Thomas died that morning in the pulpit. 
And old Tommy Thomas got up there and he said, I'm going to preach on the second coming of Christ this morning. And then with this loud, booming voice that sounded like the judgment seat of God coming down on me, he yelled out, I'll ask a question. Are you ready? And when he leaned, just like this, and we leaned over the pulpit, he, he grabbed his chest. And he started to go down and he said, are you ready? And he hit the floor one more time before he died and went out of eternity. And I was sitting right back there where Mike's sitting, only a little farther back. And that time he died and he went, the last time he said it, he mustered all the strength that he must have had for that one last thing. And brother, he was pointing right to me when he asked me the question, am I ready? Now that's getting a message personal to you. I don't know how it gets any more personal than that. That was personal. Now, there must have been 200, 300 people in that Sunday school class that morning. As far as I am concerned, he was looking straight at me. He was pointing to me, and he was talking right to my heart. And he died and went home to be with the Lord. I didn't know Tommy Thomas from the man on the moon. He didn't know me. But you see, the Holy Spirit of God in him and the Holy Spirit of God in my life, they, they had a thing going. And that thing was me. That was the thing that changed it all for me right there. I mean, Mel got up and preached the rest of the sermon, did a great job. I never heard a word of it. All that day, all I could think of was the last question that man asked, he asked me, that if I'd come today, are you ready? And you know what? I knew I wasn't ready. Well, I could have done what most God's people do. I'll just blow it off. I could have said, well, you know what? Good he died yelling up there like that, an old man. Sure, he's going to die. You're going to have a heart attack when you yell like that when you're that age. No, no, no. See, I didn't go that route. No, I, I knew he was talking to me. I knew he was talking to me. And you see, when you're out of fellowship, you only hear one thing. And that's all I heard the rest of the day. That's all I heard the rest of the week. That's all I heard the rest of the month until I finally got, got it right with God. Now, that's my analysis based on watching this thing for, oh, I don't know, over 40 years. There's a great tape you ought to get, Dr. Ruckman puts out, called Sins of the Saints. And in that, it's a great analogy of why God's people are the way they are, sins of the saints. Now, the answer to why people leave and quit going to church, good churches, is found in one word, and it brings us right back into our chapter today, in the theme of our chapter. It's the word fellowship. In our five scenarios I just gave you, everybody in those scenarios are in the wrong fellowship. Now, I, I, I want to give you a thought for today. If you don't hear anything else, get this. This is one of these ones, uh, Missy, they're going to put on my tombstone, like we talk about, you know. Uh, you heard me say that, you've heard me say many, many times, when it, end, when it begins wrong, it what? Yeah, you're picking it up on it. You've heard me say many, many times, train the best and forget the rest. You know, you've heard me say all kinds of these little one-liners that I, I have just heard somebody else say or picked up. I mean, here's another one for you. Wrong fellowship, wrong fellowship will always bring about out of fellowship. And you can take that to the bank. I've seen it happen over and over again in 10,000 cases in 40-plus years. I'm not kidding you. And uh, uh, there's a lot of things that I, I, I want to say about this chapter, uh, but it's in its basic form. This is where I want to start today based on this chapter. 
in its basic form for you and for me, our fellowship, taken down to the lowest common denominator, our fellowship should be with truth. That's where it all starts. In all five scenarios, people quit going to church or leave good churches because they get mad at the truth about themselves. Now, that morning that Tommy Thomas died, when he was pointing at me, it wasn't like just somebody getting up and talking and you got to connect the dots to you. No, no, he was talking to me. He was pointing to me. And God gave me the grace that morning to, to begin my journey with fellowship with truth, and it started with truth about me. Now, I'm going to tell you something when you start working with people. When you start working with people and dealing with people, one of the things that you got to get people to stop and you got to get to the end to is what I call the blame game. Because people want to blame their lack of spirituality on everybody. And the reason why that is so easy, because have you ever seen the list in your life and my life of people and circumstances we can blame everything on? It's endless. Now, one of the things that will keep people from ever being or doing or getting where God wants them to be is the fact that they always continually are blaming somebody else for their unspirituality and their lack of doing and being what God wants them to do. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's plain and simple. I'll prove it to you here in just a little bit. There was a story this week in, in the newspaper on the news. I don't know if any of you heard it. And it was a story about a man in Missouri who was an alcoholic. And he was a CEO or CEO or something in a large company in Missouri. And he took one of the company cars, which he had a right to do. He took one of the company cars, went out and got blind, staggering drunk, and then hit another couple head on and killed them. He was okay. Never died. The guy drunk never dies. It's always the innocent people die. And, uh, and he was fine. They, they, they charged him with, with, with murder or manslaughter or whatever. And uh, his family, his family sued the company that he worked for. And in Missouri, it was a legal lawsuit. Whether he wins or not, something else. But it was a bona fide legal lawsuit. They sued the company that he worked for because they said alcoholism is a disease. And knowing you, he had a disease, it's up to him, your company, to protect him or anybody that has that disease, and you failed to protect him. Therefore, you're guilty of his killing this person, and he's not. Now, that's where it's at in the world we live in today. And if you think that's extreme, and it is, if you think that's outrageous, it is, just wait till you start working with people. Save people. They will blame their problems on everything, everybody, every circumstance. They'll never take personal responsibility for themselves. Never will. They never will. It's always somebody else's fault. I'm not going to do this because of this person. I'm not going to do that because of what this thing is. I'm not going to get in this because of that. And the truth of the matter is, the problem with you is your heart is as black as the sides of the bottomless pit. And it'll just never work. A pastor, I mean, people are hilarious. They are. A pa- any pastor, he preaches a sermon. Now, keep down, when you preach a sermon, I'll use myself, I preach a sermon. Now, keep in mind, I mention no names. I give no specifics. I give no reference to anybody to what they did. I have no idea. 
I have people come up to me, believe it or not, people come up to me all the time after I preach, and they say, well, how'd you find out? I said, find out what? Well, you preached on me today. Now, at this point, I try to act like I'm the great guru of all knowledge, and I say, yeah, I did, didn't I, huh? Now, I'm hoping you're going to tell me what it is, because I don't know. And people all the time, they'll come up and they'll say, well, you really, you really, you know, you, you really, you really, who told you? And I said, nobody told me. No, 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 somebody told you. No, honest to goodness. I was just preaching the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God nailed you. I don't know what else to tell you. But people are hilarious. I mean, you mention no names. You give no specific reference to anything. You give out no addresses, no telephone numbers, no social security numbers. You don't flash their picture on big screens throughout the church during your message. Nothing. You just preach the truth of a book. That sins of the saint is a great tape. You ought to get it. Instinctively, somebody gets mad. I was one time years ago, I was, I was just a young guy. And I was pretty stupid back then. I didn't know all of this. And I thought the guy, and I was sitting next to a guy who I had brought to church from work. And we were sitting there, and old Mel was just, he was just hail Columbia that morning. He was going to town. And I could tell this guy was uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm still stupid at this point in my life. But I look back on it, and I think to myself, that, the, that was the innocence of my Christianity at that point. And he said to me, he, he, he said to me, who does he think he is? And I looked over and said, well, he's the preacher. Because <laughs> He was. And he said, well, what does he think he's doing? And I said, preaching. <laughs> I mean, back then I thought that's what you did. Preachers preached. What is, who does he think he is? He's the preacher. What is he doing? He's preaching. What is he supposed to do? I mean, I'm telling you. And it's a thing where, you know, he, he just was so upset about it all. I mean, he says, well, you know, he said, I just don't, I don't and, and all my life I've heard it. Well, I, I you know, I, somebody's going to say, well, uh, who does he think he is? Somebody's going to say, well, I do all kinds of things for that church. Who said you didn't? Well, I think that church is just way out of line on this. On what? You say, well, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm here, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, or I'm going to do that. Uh, you know, whoa, wait a minute. Who said it was even you? Who said anything about you? I mean, why don't you just rent out a full-page ad in the Star saying, hey, look at me, I'm out of fellowship, and I want everybody to know it. You know what? The Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. And when we get a problem in our life and we don't love God the way we should, it's just as known as when we do love him. People never figure that out. Sins of the saints, man. Sins of the saints. Sins of the saints. Now, let me give you a great verse. Now, I mean, I can see you leaving church over heresy. I can see somebody quitting going to church when they don't teach the right Bible, the wrong Bible, or it's corrupt, or it's politics. But come on, leaving the church because they preach the truth? I don't get it. Are you kidding me? Now, Proverbs 27, 7 says this, and this is a teaching principle. You'll use this. The full soul loatheth a honeycomb. The honeycomb here is the Bible. The full soul is when you're full of the world and everything about it. The full soul loatheth the honeycomb. But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. 
That's a great verse. That verse says that when you love God and the Word of God, that even the bad things that hit you, the bitter things, sweet to your taste. You see, real Christians, strong Christians, don't get mad when the sermon smacks them. You know why? They don't leave over truth. You know why? Because they're in fellowship with truth. That's why. They love a church that tells them the truth. I made up my mind a long time ago, people are the most finical people on the planet. And if I got up here and I, and I would tell you that, that the way to heaven is to be baptized and, and the way to heaven is to join a church and the way to heaven is to give money and give more money and I went on and on and on and that, some of you would figure that out that I was lying to you and you'd be so upset with me. If you found out, if you found out that I was up here for the last 20 years of my life teaching you about the Bible and telling you everything the Bible wasn't saying and teaching that thing wrong and you got people that that died and went to hell because of the fact that I didn't teach them right, I'll tell you what, you'd be so mad at me, you'd want to shoot me. And yet other people are going to get mad at you when you tell them the truth. So you know how it works for me? If you're going to get mad at me one way or the other, I just as soon have you get mad because I preach you the truth. Or I'm out with it. You're going to get mad one way or the other. Hey, when when you love truth and you're in perfect fellowship with that truth, You love all truth, no matter how it smacks you. The full soul, the hungry soul that loves the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. And when you don't, well, you got a problem. And that problem in time will, if not corrected, take you out of church. Because wrong fellowship will always kill everything in time that you try to do. Wrong fellowship will always lead to out of fellowship. Just that simple. I mean, people are a hoot. You got one person or a family, and I've seen it this way all my life. You got one person or a family out of fellowship, and the whole world is wrong. You know, I mean, I've seen it a thousand times. Well, that church is this and that. That pastor is this and that. You know, I heard it all my life. Now, keep in mind, 99% of the church is still soul winning. The church is still winning people to Christ. They're still involved in ministry. They're still working with people. People are being saved left and right. I mean, the Bible's being preached. The Bible's being taught. People are being discipled. But, oh, no, 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 no. You're right, and everybody else is wrong. Frank Sinatra. But you see, that's what being out of fellowship with truth and in fellowship with the wrong things produces. James 4, 4, enmity with God. Now let me show you why things are the way they are in churches. Now the only real difference between our church and other churches is only one deal. We do have an official whiner's report (laughs) that you can fill out and turn in. And other churches don't have that. Now, let me, let me take you to first, Second Corinthians chapter 6. And I want, to see, I want you to see now how this thing all goes together. This chapter is about fellowship. We could talk about all different aspects of fellowship, and we will. But fundamentally, lowest common denominator, your fellowship and my fellowship should be with truth. You ought to love that truth. You ought to embrace that truth, even when it smacks you alongside the head. Now, here it comes. 6-1. We then, as workers together with him, Beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in a day of salvation have I secured these. Behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense to anything that the ministry be not blamed. Now, the first thing I want to do here, and we won't get anywhere near this through this verse, couple of verses here today, uh, but the first thing I want to talk to you about and draw your attention to is verse 1. It says, Ye that receive not that you receive not the grace of God in vain. 
Now, this chapter shows us an underlying reason why people get out of fellowship with truth. And then the rest takes care of itself, as I've showed you, and in time they quit going to churches. Now, the word in vain here, or vanity, is defined for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is under the sun. I don't know if you know it or not, but the book of Ecclesiastes shows you uh, what man's labors are under the sun and how worthless they are. And the book of Ecclesiastes is built around ten vanities. And these ten vanities really is what makes the world go around uh, absolutely worthless to God, but uh, this is what the world goes after. Uh, The first one's found in chapter 2, verse 13, and it's the vanity of wisdom. You see, wisdom without God's word is worthless. It's vanity. means nothing. The second one's found in chapter 2, verse 19. That's labor. People work, 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 all the time, workaholic. You know what? It's absolutely nothing if you don't have time for the work of God. means nothing. Absolutely nothing. The third one's purpose. Chapter 2, verse 26. People have always got the wrong purpose in life. They're always trying to do things for themselves or somebody else. They never stop and look at it from the Bible standpoint and have no purpose for the things of God. The fourth one's ambition found in chapter 4, verse 4. I've met some of the most ambitious people in my life, and their lives are absolutely worthless. You know why? Their ambition is to the world, and it means nothing as far as God's concerned. Chapter 7, verse 6 talks about the vanity of fun. Now, fun's a three-letter word, so we'll cross out F-U-N and and write in S-I-N, because that's where most people's fun is. It's sin and vanity against God. 416 talks about the vanity of fame. You're 15 minutes of fame, you know. Uh, Somebody wants to be famous. Somebody wants everybody to recognize who they are and be famous and all those things. It's vanity. It's vanity. The fame you want is that the judgment seat of Christ, not down here. The vanity of money, chapter 5, verse 10. The vanity of, of selfness, uh, uh, by yourself, for yourself, doing things all alone, for you, chapter 4, verse 7. The, the vanity of covetousness in chapter 6, verse 9. The vanity of reward, that's the last one, and that's a great one to end on because that's in 810, because uh, uh, your reward in this life is not the one you ought to be looking for. It's vanity. It's the reward of the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of the day, what do these 10 things, if you have them in your life, do for you if you're unsaved? And at the end of your life, you die and go to hell. I've watched many rich people, famous person, many person who was high up in the political world. Many people, when they came to the microphone, the world stopped and listened. And I thought to myself, when that person died, I've I, I, I read about people or heard people or seen people who could, could buy the world four times over. And they use that money in great influence, not for God, but for themselves and to get what they want to get. And I think to myself, everybody looks at them and puts them in the uh, Fortune magazine, always has the top 100 millionaires, you know, or whatever, billionaires, whatever it is. And everybody wants to get to that top. And I've thought to myself, what is a deal that if you get in that book and then you die and burn in hell for the rest of eternity? Never made any sense to me. Never made any sense to me. Now, when a person gets out of fellowship, this is what happens. And this is where it goes back to our chapter. He simply sets aside the grace of God in his life and replaces it with one or more of these ten vanities. It's real simple. Now, turn back to Exodus chapter 20. I want to show you something. I'm going to give you something real valuable today. You'll use this a lot. Exodus chapter 20. Now, I want to take you all the way back where this thing really starts. Now, in Exodus chapter 20 is where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. And... Uh, The Ten Commandments 
have really been the standard for all societies as far as right and wrong and, and, and law. It really is. We talk about America being founded on Judeo-Christian principles. People hear that and don't know what it means. It basically means that our society takes the Ten Commandments and then we add the Christian principles to it and we follow the Word of God both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of misunderstanding about the Ten Commandments. People think that God gave you the Ten Commandments to keep. Therefore, if you keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to go to heaven. And of course, they're sadly going to find out that the Ten Commandments were never given for you to keep. God never intended you to keep them because no man can keep them. You says, well, I kept most of them. That don't work for you. Somebody said, well, I kept nine of them. That doesn't work for you either. Bible says he that keepeth the whole law and, and break it in one point, guilty of it all. No, no, no. You don't get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were never given to you or me to keep. The Ten Commandments were given for you and me that God would show us how far we fall short of what God's perfection is. Bible says in the New Testament that the law was our schoolmaster. It brought us to Christ. It showed us the error of our way. That's what the law is for. But now, am I going to tell you there's not good principles to follow in life? Sure, they are. But the world today, they don't look at them as the Ten Commandments. They look at them as the Ten Suggestions. They don't follow it anymore. I, I think it's an interesting thing. Most people never observe these things. If you go to Washington, D.C., you'd find over 50 buildings, federal buildings in Washington. And on those federal buildings and on monuments and some very important places, you know what you find on every one of those, in front of those doors when you go in? A verse out of the Bible. And it isn't a Koran either. Now, that's a verse out of a King James 1611 authorized version. Why? Because when this country was founded, it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And when they built those buildings back when, this country still was founded on the Word of God, and they knew where it came from, and they put those verses on those buildings. Nobody even pays attention anymore. Never do. Now, you come down through that, and we're not going to go through them all today, but look at, look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Here's the third one. Now, I want to show you how this thing works. Now, this is to Israel. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You see that? That's the third commandment. Now, all my life, all my life, I've heard that that verse was a reference to cursing and cussing. All my life, I've heard somebody, when they use God's name, you know, in a cuss word, somebody say, well, you're not to use the word of God, the Lord's name in vain. Uh, and you shouldn't. But I want to tell you something, that verse doesn't mean that. It never meant that. Doesn't mean it today. Didn't mean it when it was written. Didn't mean it anywhere in between. No, no. But what it does mean is an incredible truth about God and his people, the nation of Israel. And then it leads us right back into our study here. Now, here's the concept of uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Israel as a nation took God's name. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 9 says that God chose Israel and set, his, set God's name with Israel. And God's people, Israel, was bearing his name. You see it all the way through the Bible. And as they bore his name, took his name as his people and his nation, they were to fulfill God's plan as God's people, bearing his name to the world. Look at Joshua chapter uh, 9, verse 9, with the Danites. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, there's 14 names of God in the Old Testament. Every one of them is to the nation of Israel. Every one of them. Every one of them. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, David goes out to fight Goliath. You know what he says? He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Israel took God's name. They took God's name. 
And you're going to find in the Old Testament where a prophet speaks, he says, thus saith the Lord. He speaks in the name of God because he has taken as a nation that name. Back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is contemplating going up before Pharaoh and he's talking with God in the burning bush. And Moses says, okay, who am I going to say sent me? And he says, you tell him I am. I am that I am. The I am sent you. Now, that's a great study on what we call in theological circles the Tetragrammaton. And that's the unpronounceable holy name of God that, that uh, Israel uh, was so uh, cherished uh, and, and, and so afraid that they would mispronounce that name, that they never spoke it. When they translated it in the Bible in Hebrew, they just translated it the Lord. They wouldn't even attempt to try to translate it. No Jew has ever tried to pronounce that name, and so that's why the Bible says over there in Revelation chapter 19, verse 4, that when he comes back, he has a name written that no man knew but he himself. And that name is the name of God that Israel took. Israel took his name. You didn't take his name. I didn't take his name. I got his body. I don't need his name. But you see, understanding that, then you begin to see Israel's problem was real simple. She violated the third commandment. They took God's name, but they got out of fellowship, and then they did absolutely nothing with God's name and never fulfilled his plan that goes along with his name. They took the name of God, but they took it in vain. And they took it, but never fulfilled and did nothing with it, and that led to the captivity of 606 B.C., led them being cast out of, of every nation on this planet for 2,000, 3,000 years, and now they're going to have to go through the tribulation period. You know what? They're going to get that name back. Now watch this. Now, here's the difference between the Old Testament Israel and New Testament Christianity. Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, you and I have not taken God's name. That's to Israel. No, no, no. You and I didn't take God's name. Don't give me this charismatic crap about, well, I've got the name of God. Yeah, you may have the name of God. That's nice. And go speak in tongues someplace. You want to get into the real Bible and figure out the Bible. You didn't take God's name. You took something else from God that Israel didn't got, never got. You know what you took? You took God's grace. You took God's grace. Israel never got his grace. Not in their salvation. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Israel had the name of God for their work. The church, you and me, have the grace of God for our work. We are to take the grace of God that God has given us, and we are to take it and give it to others. Now, in both cases, here's the problem. Israel took God's name and did absolutely nothing with it. God's people today take God's grace and do absolutely nothing with it. And Paul said, 1 Corinthians 6, 1, don't take the grace of God in vain. You know what God's people have done today? They've taken the grace of God in vain. They've taken the grace of God in vain. They got saved, took God's grace, and then did nothing with it. I'll say it again. I've said it several times down through the last couple of weeks. There's two aspects to the gospel. Gospel means good news. There's the salvation, that's where you receive it, and then there's the, there's the fulfillment where you put it out. And once you get saved, you get grace to get saved, God saves you, and then you take that same grace and then you give it to somebody else through ministry. And when you don't do that, let me tell you what you've done. You have taken the grace of God in vain. Just as simple as that. Just as simple as that. Your fellowship needs to be with truth. The gospel, God's grace to others, the ministry. That's what our fellowship should be. And you and me here, 
after what God has done for me and for you. I can't speak for you, but I know what he's done for me. I guess I can, because I know what he's done for a lot of you. And given you, and what he's brought you through, and the things that he's got you over, and the fact that he saves you, and then what? You get mad at me because I remind you of that fact? Some of you were delivered from alcohol. I remember when you were down, down, staggering drunk when you came into this place. And God delivered you. Some delivered, God delivered some of you from drugs. I remember when your, your pupils looked like pie plates. And God delivered you from that. Some of you, after you got saved, you had some disease or some illness. Some of you women were afraid of breast cancer. Some of you men had prostate cancer. Some of you had colon cancer. Some of you had uh, some other problem with you. Some of you had heart attacks. Some of you had strokes. Are you worried about somebody in your family that did? God brought you through it. God walked you through every inch of it, every second of it. You know why? Because he gave you his grace and then gave you the grace to get through what you went through. Amen. That's where our fellowship should be. In the Bible, in Luke chapter 17, there, there's a story of 10 lepers. Now, leprosy in the Bible is like sin. And they went to Jesus and Jesus healed all 10 of them. He didn't say, well, maybe you, not you, no. He did with them what he does with every one of us. He took them in, and he healed them of their leprosy. And they went on their way. And out of those ten, only one came back to say, what do you want me to do? One out of ten. That's what God's people are today. We'll take everything that God does for us. We'll whine and cry to God when we get some disease or when somebody in our family gets it or somebody dies or somebody's this or somebody's that. And oh, we want God then, but when he wants something out of you. Oh, yeah. We say, well, I'm leaving the church. Well, at least now you'll know why you're leaving. Guy said to me one time years ago, he says, Well, I, I preached all, I remember messages I preached, but it was something he didn't like. And he says, Well, I want you to know after that sermon, I'm leaving the church. I said, Could you explain something before you leave? I said, Yeah, what? I said, How do you leave something you never really were a part of to begin with? I mean, come on. You never did anything in the 10 years I knew you, you never gave anything. You never got into any ministry. You wouldn't lift your finger to clean this church or to pick up the chairs or put down the tables. Nothing. So what won't go on next week if you don't bless us with your presence? He had no answer. He had no answer. Now, I must confess. Bible says, confess your faults. I must confess. I have a tough time with this thing. I do. I have a tough time. I'm going to be honest with you. I have a tough time with God's people who take God's grace and then don't do a thing with it after God gave you and then instinctively. When something goes wrong in your world, God's the first door you knock on. You want everything for him and yet you will not give anything back to him. 
And the first time something happens to somebody, you know, uh, everybody calls to get the prayer chain going. And I'll tell you what, I, I believe in prayer and I think everybody needs to be prayed for. I think it's great. People say, I'm going to pray for you, Bob. And I say, that's good. I need to pray. You need to practice. That's really good. I appreciate that. But I'm telling you, I have a hard time. I have a hard time with men and women who just consistently do their own thing, care nothing about the things of God, take the grace of God, take it in vain, and then suddenly when something happens, oh, good thing I'm not God. I'd kill everybody on planet Earth. I'd start with myself. Not that I could ever be God. Now look at verse 2. Now, I built this up to a point. I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago to get an injection in my back. I was kind of nervous about it because I don't like needles. And I really don't like big needles. And I walked in that air, and there the nurse was checking me in with a neighbor lady across the street that has that little chihuahua. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <clears throat> so I go in. I really like the guy. We talk a little bit. And so he says, well, let's get you all set up for these injections. And I, and I, and I said, okay. So the nurse takes me in. They lay on this table. They put your rear end up in the air so they can get a good shot at your back here. And they put it on a pillow. And they got this big table, and it's an x-ray machine. And it goes down. Actually shows him. He looks on the screen, actually sees where, the, where he wants to put the needle. And then he puts it in. And, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's like going to the dentist. You know, I, I've had my trials. I had to go do that. And then last week I went to the dentist. And they all say the same thing right before they give you the shot. This is going to sting a little bit. Verse 2 is going to sting a little bit. <clears throat> For he saith, this is almost sarcastic. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in a day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know what he's saying? This kills me. This beats me down. I mean, I know some of you don't like hearing what I'm saying today. You got to step in my shoes. Uh, God has beat me six ways from Sunday all week long. I've had to look at this and put this together and deal with this every day. You got to hear it one time. Unless you're really, really abusive, you want to buy the tape. But I had to hear this thing and put this thing and look at that verse day after day after day this week. It got so bad that I didn't even want to do it. I was going to preach... The Lord is my shepherd this morning. But I knew you'd get mad at that. You know what he's saying? He, let, me, let me put it in a modern, common, or vernacular language so you can all get it. He's saying, what's your deal? Was I not there for you when you called me to save you? Psalm 40 said, I, 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 I waited on the Lord and cried unto him, and he heard my cry. It says, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my going. And I put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. When you and I cried out, he heard us. It wasn't like, oh yeah, he's calling, I'll get to him in another century. He heard us. He heard me. And he heard you. He says, I have heard thee in the time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. You know what that word means? That's an old English word. It means to be relieved of a heavy burden. 
It means to be, uh, it means to be taken from and rescued from some danger. I say he relieved me of a heavy burden the day I got saved. Roll away, roll away, roll away. All the burdens in my heart rolled away. Burdens were lifted at Calvary. You bet they were. He's saying, what's your deal? I was, I was there when you called on me. I was there to save you. Now what? After you take my grace, why would you not answer my call back to you to do for me exactly what I saved you for? That's a good question. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Now, what, what, what part of that is hard to grasp? Should I, I'll ask you, should I not preach anything like this this morning? You know what bothers me about most of God's people? We all make fun of Joe Olstein. We all laugh about him, and we all make fun of him, and we all think what a goofball he is. And he's in town right now, I do believe. And we all make fun of Joel Osteen and think what an idiot is. But the truth of the matter is, most of God's people would really like if I just preached a Joel Osteen message. Told you how nice you are. Told you what a wonderful person you are. Told you how, how enlightening and uplifting you are. Focused on all the positive things. That'd take me a lot longer to put that message together than it would to do this one. He's saying, what's your deal? When you call upon me for me to save you, I was there. Now, after you've taken my grace, after I, I, I relieved you of that heavy burden, now I got a burden. I'm burdened for souls. I'm burdened for people. I'm burdened for the world. And you called upon me. I gave you my grace. When I called you back, you didn't pick up the phone. In fact, you got your nose bent out of joint about that little pipsqueak guy down there in Old Paz Baptist Church that I set up in that pulpit to tell you exactly what I wanted you to do. God's people are the most thankless, the most selfish, the most conceited, the most self-righteous bunch you ever saw. Oh, God heard you when you called on him. Oh, God, help me. The doctor report just said I got cancer. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, the doctor just said my, my husband had a heart attack. Oh, God, help me. I'm facing this or I'm facing that. Oh, God, help me. Oh, do this. Oh, my kids are sick. Oh, my this or that. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. And when he does, when God says, now I need your help, no thanks, God. You're just a sucker. He'll bet you. I'm telling you. I'm confessing my faults. I have a really tough time with that. Wrong fellowship, brother. Wrong fellowship. We've taken the grace of God in vain. And just like Israel took the name and did nothing with it, God gave you his grace. Why are you not doing something with it? Now look at verse 3. This is what a turkey farm sounds like the day after Thanksgiving. 
giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. Now, this is really simple to understand. When you and I don't fulfill our call to God, when you and I take His grace and take it in vain, remember now, wrong fellowship has now produced what it always produces, out of fellowship. When you and I don't do what God has saved us for, the ministry suffers. The cause of Christ suffers. The church gets overburdened. People get wore out. 30 people now have to do the work of 100 should be doing. People get tired. People will not share the burden of the church and the ministry puts the burden on the few, the faithful few that will do it and it wears them out. Nobody wants to clean the church. Nobody wants to work in the nursery. Nobody wants to work in the elementary. Nobody wants to do the ministry. Going down to restart is stupid. Everybody wants to do, nobody wants to do anything. And yet, when we call upon God, if you got some terrible news on the way out of here today, the first thing you would say is, oh my God. And he'd say, yeah, what do you need? God says, by the way, I need this. Not now. Not now. Not now. I'm between churches. I think I'll stay that way. We've taken the grace of God in vain. While the rest do nothing, everybody else does the work. Everybody else sits around and complains. Well, I don't like her. I don't like him. I don't like this. I don't like that. Well, if we all would get together who are doing all the work, we'd say, and we don't like you. (laughs) But we can't. Because that's not the grace of God. The grace of God is simple. You pray for people like that. You always love people like that. But I'm not under any illusion that I can count on people like that. So you begin to see how important this great chapter really is. This chapter deals with the fellowship of the minister. And with all the different aspects of fellowship that we could talk about and study. The baseline of fellowship is always the fellowship we have with truth. It's where fellowship has to start in our fellowship with God is God's truth. And no matter how hard it hits us, we, those of us who love the honeycomb so much, and are in such fellowship with it that even the bitter things that God sends our way become sweet. You know how you tell a real Christian? I mean, a real one. And I know we all have our struggles, but you know how you find a real one? You find a real one who just never really allows much to upset them. Because they're always focused on what God's called them to do. And they always just want to be with God and the Word of God. You know, the people in every church, they'll go around saying, well, do you know this or do you know that or by so this or that, or that? You always got that. You always got that. You always got that. I've seen people in churches that give out verses on this hand and give out gossip on the other. You're always going to have that. The end of the day, real fellowship, our fellowship, wherever we go in this chapter, wherever we see where it leads us, it starts with our fellowship with truth and how you let that truth impact you. Truth will change you. I think that's the thing that most people don't like about it. The Frank Sinatra's of life. You are who you are. You want to be who you are. Or you'll come to a church. You'll even bring the right Bible to church. 
But when push comes to shove, you're nowhere to be found. We, you couldn't count on you for anything. You know, it's all about you. You walk around strutting who you are and all of this and all of that and talk about God. We just never see anything out of you for God. It's because truth will change you. You see, you can pretend, listen to me, you can pretend being a Christian, you really can, right up to you're confronted with truth because truth will change you. And the same truth who changes you that everybody sees the difference is the same truth when you don't want it to change you everybody sees what it is. That's what truth does. That's what truth does. Truth is an amazing thing. And our job is to be in fellowship with God's truth, no matter how hard it hits us. We love that honeycomb. We love being in fellowship with it. And when you can't deal with that truth about yourself, then you and I become like the people Paul had to deal with throughout the whole Bible. You know, I'm I'm talking about something that goes all the way back to Paul's time. Paul faced exactly what every pastor faces today and down through history of ministry. It isn't like this is some unique thing that only happens in a Laodicean church period. It happens in every church. It's happened in every church period. It happened in Philadelphia. It happened in Ephesus. It happened in Thyatira. And it happened in Paul's day. Paul was always frustrated because Paul, you never find a guy who tried to bend over backward to give people what they wanted and how to help them. You never find a guy who was not more on fire for the things of God, who wanted other people to feel that fire, and you never find a person who was more intent on getting people the truth. Yet in the book of Galatians, when he's faced with the church that he started, the church of Galatia was just not some church that he was passing through, said, I'll stop here because I hear they got a problem. He started this church. He won these people to Christ. He invested his time in his church. He gave them the word of God. He gave them the grace of God. And now somebody's come in to take that grace from them. Somebody's come in and saying, well, you can believe in God and Jesus Christ, but you've got to believe the Old Testament too. And Paul comes in and he says, hey, guys, what's going on here? You know better than this. You know that this is not going to be productive for the ministry. You know that God's called you to be a church that's going to win people to Christ. You know you took the grace of God and you're supposed to give that grace to other people. There was no law involved in it when I won you to Christ. Oh, how things change. How things change. And he said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, something that I'm sure every pastor that's worth his salt has felt and thought at some point in his ministry. I know I have. Because he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Would you rather have me lie to you? Would you rather have me tell you something that isn't true? In closing, and I know this won't work for some of you, but it'll work for many of you. Allow me to give you something to think about and a good solid piece of advice. Never make truth your enemy. Never make truth your enemy. Always embrace it as your friend. And one other piece of advice along with that. And always love those who are brave enough to tell you the truth. Because there are few people in your life that will. 
if you take those two pieces of advice and you do something with them, it'll do something with you. But the grace of God, when we open up this chapter, you now understand some things. You understand why people can go to a great church, preaches the Bible, and then suddenly not want to go to church anymore. Churches all across this country, pastors faced with it every day. Everybody faces it, but nobody understands it. It goes back to those five scenarios, and those five scenarios go back to one thing, what they're in fellowship with. What you're in fellowship with as a child of God in its baseline has to be truth. And when it is, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter if it hits you wrong, it hits you right, it hits you where you don't like it. When you love the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. Father, we do thank